2: On News Radio 680 WPTF.
1: And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner.
2: And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Very interesting things are happening in in the media. Did you see that article about financial planning on a limited budget?
1: I did see that article. It's from the Wall Street Journal, and I thought it was very interesting the way the article began. Uh, It began by saying you don't need a high net worth or complicated investments to create a financial plan for a flat or an hourly fee. A certified financial planner can help you develop a savings plan, get your budget in order and pay down debt. Now, I thought that was very interesting, but at least it was out there as a lead in to a great article. And I thought the article was focusing on middle class America. You know what I'm saying,
3: Deborah? I do. I do. I think there's a big need for people who are thinking that financial planning is above them or too expensive or that they're not supposed to be thinking about it now really could get something out of this article.
1: I I like the idea, and I don't know, maybe I've just forgotten through the years that some people, a lot of people, still think that financial planning is only for the very wealthy. And so this article brought it to the attention of the public that, no, that's not so. However, there were a few things in the article to watch out for, uh, one of them said most of the consultations, when you do it this way, are done over the phone and via email. Now, that is not, in my opinion, financial planning. Uh, there are some uh, websites that are advertising. You can link into this website and you can have a financial planning consultation by telephone or by email. That I don't think is proper. I think you really need to have the face-to-face interaction with your client if you are the financial planner and if you are the client you want that face-to-face interaction but this is a wonderful way for young people or those who suddenly have to manage their own finances to get off on the right foot
3: and i think that's the biggest part is that is is a way to mobilize the people who have been thinking about it and didn't know how to get started that's right Deborah. where do you go who do you ask how do you get those questions that have been on a list and not been addressed yet answered
1: and a simple example in the article was a person who said, well, she was advised just to raise the amount that she's been contributing to her retirement plan by 1% of her pay. I thought that's great. That's definitely the kind of thing you need to always beef up as much as you can when you're young, thinking of what it means in the future.
2: It is important to save, isn't it? And and beefing up the, your, your emergency fund is one of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, from, you know, from three months to... Maybe six months, because you never know when an emergency is going to come up. And uh, we're living in a society that, uh, you know, is spending all the time. Spend, spend, spend. That's what the media is saying. But I agree with you, Debs. Uh, it's important to to think about saving and what are the ways that you can do that. If
3: you want to call us during the week to set up an appointment for yourself, give me a call at 919-872-7000, and we will get started. We'll make a list of the questions that are on your mind. And, and that's what I think is, is the long-term plan that most people need to know about is, am I saving for retirement well? Is there something that I should do? Is there something I could do better? And I think what that's what this service would provide.
1: Right. I'm 32 years old. Uh, where do I go? What's the right way to do it? And for that part of the marketplace, and I remember some of our clients that were 32 years old, 30s, and they've now, through the years, they've become millionaires. Financially That's independent. That's right. They've the become achievers plan- in the bunch. That's right. Yeah, it's not are- that difficult if you've got the years and if you've got a plan. It can happen, and we have seen it happen many a time to our clients.
3: Absolutely. And I think most planners out there are going to have about an average of fifteen years experience, and you know, even if they don't, you might you might want to ask how many years experience they do have. Yeah, the one uh,
1: service that was uh, announced that I disagreed with was this sort of uh, a national network of people that says, uh, I think they called themselves MyFinancialAdvice.com dot com or something like that, oh. where they advertised. All of our planners have 15 years' experience, and we only charge $135 an hour, and all communications are by phone. That's to be watched out for.
3: Okay, so it, I misread that part. Yeah, okay,
1: Yeah, that's right, Debs. It is important that you do meet with a financial planner who is not new. That's right. exactly right. You do want someone who has many years of experience, who's been through the ups and downs, who has seen the market crash and come all the way back, who has seen all the life issues of uh, diseases and crises that happen. You do want that, but you don't want it by a shortcut version by telephone. Now, there are in the article, there are some people who were being uh, quoted. And I like this, that you can simply have face to face meetings anywhere. The article said from one hundred and eighty dollars an hour to two hundred and forty dollars an hour. That's more than worth it. That's very reasonable if you think that way and you're going to be putting your life in order. It's for young adults who don't really have great changes that they're expecting.
2: Remember the old saying you get what you pay for. (laughs) If you didn't pay for it, beware. Um, Well, I think the the more important thing is that uh, if you're working with someone that has experience, that has expertise, And that has the knowledge um, to answer your questions, to give you direction, and to give you a comfort about what you should be doing in your own personal situation. Uh, Because everyone needs to plan. You're never too young to plan, and you're never too old to plan. Because... uh, uh, because there's always something to plan for. <laughs> that's
3: right. you know, that's the good news. That's the good news. <laughs> you know, there's you more life, there's accumulate. more to plan. <laughs> you
2: got to uh, uh, get those, uh, to figure out, you know, how much should I be contributing to my 401k? Should I be doing to the match or to the max? And what about insurance? Do I need more if I have little children? And also, very important is the estate planning. Um, have you set up guardianship for your children, et cetera? If
3: you'd like further information, call us at 919-872-7000 or go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. Well, Doug, let's take a caller now. Okay,
1: Richard, Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, how can I help you?
4: Uh, good evening. I'd like to just uh, see if I get some input from you as to what's an appropriate rule of thumb in purchasing life insurance.
1: Mm, no such thing as appropriate rules of thumb. The okay. appropriate rule of thumb is make sure that you've got the right amount. You don't have too much or too little. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, if, how old are you? Uh, Thirty-five. Thirty-five years old. <clears throat> Excuse me. Married or single? Married. Married. Any children? Uh, yes, one. One child. How old? Uh, Eighteen months. All right. A new, uh, a new one. Uh, income.
4: Uh, combined incomes of.
1: No, I uh, need, I need, I need individual. Let's
4: say around sixty.
1: For the husband. Yes. Husband 60, and the wife? About 40. About 40, all right. Uh, what are your personal assets, your investment assets look like? For example, what do you have in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, cash, all of your non-investment, um, your your non-retirement investments? Uh, say about 50,000. 50,000 in investments. They're all liquid now. Now you're not United, United accounting real estate there? That's correct. Okay. Uh, what else do you have? How about retirement assets?
4: Um, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, forty.
1: Forty thousand in retirement funds. These are in your name. I mean, uh, this, yeah. this is your retirement. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, the first thing we want to do. Do you know what your living expenses are running? Uh,
4: yeah, approximately.
1: All right. How much are your living expenses running?
4: We're looking at uh, roughly thirty-two hundred or so uh, a month. All
1: right. Let's see. You're spending thirty-eight thousand. A year, must be spending more than that, unless you just started. You just start that your income just. I, I can't see you making a hundred thousand, only spending thirty eight thousand, and all you have accumulated is fifty thousand in investments, unless.
4: Uh, uh, there's there's some uh, uh, special circumstances involved with with where we're at.
1: Well, what the real key to the insurance is the knee is the living expenses. Mm-hmm. And so we need to find out what the expenses are. Uh, I can use 38000 but I'd be a little nervous because what 38000 says is if you die, your wife doesn't need any insurance because her income will support. You see what I'm saying? Because sure. she, she's making $40,000. Yep. Uh, what I generally do is I try and get a total expense and be very, um, well, I want to say conservative, meaning push your expenses. Go through a living expense analysis to find out if... The husband dies, what does the wife need to live on? Mm-hmm. And what does she want to live on, not only need? Don't be real penny-pinching there. Mm-hmm. Then I do the same thing with the other one. Once I've got that figure, then I go ahead. And, of course, with, with one, like let's say if you were to die, well, of course, right now I guess you've got to have bad daycare, though, anyway, don't you, for your child? That's correct. Okay, so that's already in your expense budget. Mm-hmm. All right. If you're spending, let's say, 38000 all right, on your expenses, then that's about fifty-nine thousand is what you need to, to make before tax. Fifty nine thousand before tax would be you need to have about eight hundred and forty thousand of insurance if you had no investments. In other words, eight hundred and forty thousand of insurance would produce fifty well, wait a minute, excuse me. Got 59, we got fifty-nine thousand. We have to make. If she's going to go ahead and make forty, then there'd only be nineteen left. I take the nineteen thousand, and that would say I need about three hundred thousand of insurance to go ahead and cover, because three hundred thousand would produce nineteen thousand a year in income.
3: This is Deborah Lewis. Our number at the office is nine one nine. Eight seven two seven thousand nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand.
1: Then I go ahead and plug in the investments that you have to see how much that would produce. But if you've only got fifty thousand of investments, that's only going to at best produce about thirty five hundred a year. And she needs nineteen thousand a year. Okay. On the other hand, from what you're telling me, you probably well you could use a little insurance on her sixty thousand. You're making sixty thousand. Is it stable income? Yes. Uh, you're real close to where you probably don't need much insurance on her. Mm-hmm. So, looking at the need portion, I would say that to be safe, you might go ahead and have about three hundred thousand on yourself, and maybe a hundred thousand on her. But the other approach would be, or not the other approach. The other piece to bring into the equation would be: all right, once I know my need, then what kind of insurance would I get? Sure. Well. And that comes back to your income. If your income is one hundred thousand and your expenses are only thirty-eight thousand, do you know how much you're able to save monthly, uh,
4: exclusive of retirement? Yes. Um, hard to say right now, Doug.
1: That's an important factor. Okay. Because we because if indeed there's a large discretionary amount, let's say for example that you're saving that you're able to save about two thousand or three thousand a month. If indeed you're able to save that, then we want to run forward X number of years and see how much you will accumulate, how long it will take you to accumulate before you self-insure. Okay. Because there's no reason if you've got a large enough discretionary income, meaning the excess of income over outflow, Mm -hmm. for you to think that I've got to go ahead and keep buying insurance. Insurance should be a necessary evil that you participate in, so to speak. Which brings us down to the point that you want to get the cheapest kind of insurance if you're young which you are then level term is the ideal vehicle for you okay you could probably get a half a million dollar policy for i don't know i'd take a ballpark and say probably less than oh a thousand a year my guess would be i maybe 83 or 85 dollars a month something like that i don't know i'd have to go ahead and check some companies but i doubt if you'd have to pay much And maybe you pick up a a 15 or 20 year level term policy, which says I've got 15 years where the premium stays the same. Mm -hmm. It builds up no cash value. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I've got a discretionary income where I'm funding an investment plan of at the rate of 2000 a month, I can run my numbers and see that I will well exceed any need for insurance before that 15 years is over. Okay. That seems to make sense. Right. So that's the approach I use in my office. I actually work with a computer and do some more serious numbers But uh, the rule of thumb, if you were looking for a rule of thumb, is get only the amount that you need to support, to produce enough income to support your present lifestyle today, and then run another uh, tabulation to find out at the investment savings rate, when will I not need to insure at all? Mm -hmm. Does, Does that help, Richard? No, I think that's
4: most insightful, and I appreciate that. Uh, that assistant.
1: Great.
2: Okay. And if And if you'd like any further information, you can call me at the office, and I'll be happy to send you uh, that introductory packet. And the number in Raleigh is nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand eight seven two seven thousand. Okay. Super. Thanks. So All much. right. Have Thanks for evening. calling. Alrighty. Bye bye.
1: Financial planning, Linda, is really. Uh, I think a lot of people are wondering what kinds of questions they should ask about financial planning I think a lot of people really don't know
2: well I guess the main thing to ask is what is financial planning
1: well no, that's a good question what is financial planning I always think everybody knows but I guess they don't financial planning Linda is a way well you might think of financial planning as a roadmap a way to get from here to there with the fewest detours and potholes now undoubtedly you've got certain specific lifetime goals everybody does maybe the goals are a comfortable retirement or college education for your kids, or a business that you want to start, or an estate that you want to pass on to your family, or maybe a charity, or some dream home you want to build, well, personal financial planning helps you reach those goals through the development and proper management of your finances. That, In other words, financial planning isn't a product, it's a process, and you may use certain financial products like mutual funds or insurance or creative solutions like wills and trusts to get there, but... The ends that you're trying to reach are basically dependent upon the process, which is financial planning.
2: What is the financial planning process?
1: It's a series of steps, Lynn, that are taken to help you achieve your goals. Now, the qualified financial planner, who's a certified financial planner, should first gather and analyze data about your income and your expenses, about your taxes, about your insurance, your retirement plans, your wills, your trusts, about your investments, and any other information that's pertinent to your overall financial situation. And then the planner should help you set realistic goals and identify certain key issues concerning those goals, and maybe even make a list of recommendations and strategies for achieving them. And once you've decided which recommendations to follow, then the planner should be able to help you implement those decisions. And the last step in this process is to periodically review and revise the plan. Because, you know, Lynn, one size doesn't fit all in financial planning. It's a set of goals and strategies that are tailored to meet specific values, abilities, and needs of each individual client.
2: Well, Doug, sometimes some people wonder, isn't financial planning just for the wealthy?
1: Yeah, a lot of people think it is, but it's not, Lynn. Financial planning is not at all for the wealthy, nor is it about getting wealthy. It's about helping you achieve your goals whatever your level of affluence. Now, anyone who wants to take control of his or her financial life and make good financial decisions can use financial planning. Years ago, the financial life of the average family was relatively uncomplicated. But boy, I'll tell you, as people are living longer, uh, there's increased complexity, a more complex, dynamic financial world for all of us, and financial Planning is really no longer a luxury, but it's a necessity for most Americans.
2: Yes, it certainly is. Now, is financial planning really that important today? Some people wonder.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, think of it this way, Lynn. Many retirees today are going to live 30 or more years in retirement, requiring far more in the way of financial management to maintain their desired lifestyle with inflation going up over a 30-year period. And then consider this. Social Security and company pensions are no longer able to provide the majority of the retirement funds for many people. So if you don't do planning, you may be having a disaster waiting for you.
3: You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, DougAndLinda.com. And then another thing that's happening is tax laws.
1: They're changing almost every year. And think about it this way. There's no longer job security, so is financial planning really important? Boy, I'll say it's important.
2: And, you know, statistics say that uh, the average American changes jobs about seven times in a lifetime, and there are millions of Americans who are self-employed, and because they're self-employed, they demand new approaches t- uh, towards saving and retirement and taxes and estate planning, right?
1: Yeah. You know, Lynn, there's another situation that just occurred to me that a lot of people are facing. It's couples who have children later in life are finding the sandwich generation facing them where they're trying to pay for college and also help their elderly parents while trying to save for their own retirement. So they got three goals they're trying to meet with one income, taking care of their kids' college, taking care of their parents who need help, and planning for their own retirement. And it is a real stress.
2: You should work with a financial planner, a certified financial planner, that can assist you in addressing the goals and the objectives that you have in your world. Well, Doug, um, another question that people wonder about is, how do I know if I really need financial planning?
1: Well, you ask yourself certain questions, Lynn. Uh, Questions like maybe, uh, oh, I don't know, let's say, uh, you want to, Let's say you're confused about the vast array of investment options that are out there. Or maybe you're unclear about how your current investments are performing. Or is the risk that you've got with your present in- investments appropriate for your goals? Or uh, are you uncertain whether you've got the right kinds and amounts of insurance coverage? Have you created an estate plan that's proper? Are you paying too much in taxes? You just answer, ask these questions to yourself, and if any of these questions trigger, yes, that's me, then right away you need to meet with a certified financial planner. The
2: thing that people wonder about is, how can financial planning benefit me?
1: The benefits? Well, first of all, it's going to give you a clear picture, perhaps for the first time in your life, of where you stand financially. Many families have no idea how much money they have in their estate or how they spend their money or what they want their money to do for them. Financial planning will give direction and give discipline. And uh, as the pieces try to come together, all of a sudden the picture is a composite picture. If they don't fit together, there may be conflicts which compound the problem. So what financial planning benefits to you, or what the benefits are, is it integrates your assets with your goals and your objectives to help you achieve those goals by motivating you to action you know if you are not increasing your wealth each year and a lot of people aren't a lot of people are working day to, day to day to day to day to day but they're not gaining anything well there's something wrong there you should be your wealth should be increasing throughout your working years to support you after you stop working
2: yes you certainly do need to be accumulating and you know Doug, a lot of the folks that I speak with that call in at the office generally want some direction or they want some education so that they know how to make those choices. And by working with a financial planner, uh, the planner can help define and explain things that sometimes folks just feel ashamed or they feel inadequate or... They feel confused.
1: And it's very common with husbands and wives. They handle money differently. They don't communicate well about money and about financial goals. And they need the help of a financial planner to really work with together to see it from both his view and her view.
2: Well, Doug, how does financial planning work?
1: Well, first, you and your planner identify and prioritize those lifetime goals. What's realistic for your circumstances and what isn't realistic The planner then will gather the data, review the cash flow, the insurance, the net worth, and then assess your investments and your retirement needs and your taxes and your estate plan. And with your goals and resources in mind, the planner will design a personalized financial plan that helps you reach your goals by making the most of the resources that you've got. Now, once that plan is is produced, then he or she will implement specific strategies to carry out the plan, this may be building on an emergency fund or beginning an investment program or uh, purchasing disability or long term care insurance, but the implementation follows the plan.
2: Write down some of the questions that you have, and certainly if there's anything we can do to assist you with this, we'd be happy to do so. And that number here in Raleigh is eight seven two seven thousand USA seven thousand.
1: Hi, Frank. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you this evening? Yes, Doug Amanda, thank you
2: for your Thank, Thank you. you for calling.
5: Uh, uh, later in the year, I'm going to retire, and I'll be coming into some money um, through the sale of some land, and then also I'll be taking over my 401k plan. That's what I meant by coming into some money. And uh, I'm doing some reading and research and trying to educate myself better on investments, but especially mutual funds. So. How do you start? I think there are nine or ten thousand individual funds, and then there are fund families.
1: And it gets even more complicated than that because you have fund of funds, you have wrap accounts, you have you have ETF funds, you have index funds, and you're exactly right. It yes. does. It's very complicated. Um, I would say, first of all, in terms of just broad general education, you should uh, find a fee based financial planning professional, whether it's myself or someone else, that can go ahead and face-to-face walk you through the educational division of how funds work, what funds are out there, and so on. But on the air, what I can tell you is this. A mutual fund is a pool of either stocks or bonds. Let's just think about stock mutual funds for the moment. So a mutual fund is going to have less risk than an individual stock because you may have A hundred stocks in a fund, and so your money is now reduced in its risk because it's spread over a hundred. But number two, that's not good enough because then the kinds of stocks in that fund will be the category of mutual funds. So let's say that you want only the safest stocks called blue chips. That means you want a growth and income fund, meaning a mutual fund that has blue chip stocks that produce dividends, But then the question is, do you choose mutual funds that have managers or don't have managers? My advice is never choose a mutual fund that does not have a manager. Or to say it another way, don't buy index funds. What you want are mutual funds who have managers that have consistently outperformed their indexes. Then, besides that, you want mutual funds whose managers are still on that fund. Now, this is not so easy to find because they don't advertise that. They advertise the record of the fund, but the manager may have been only on there for a year or two. He may have come from another fund. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So you definitely want to have mutual funds who have active managers. And then, after you have that, and I like to have managers who have been on the fund for over 10 years, once, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
5: I've I've read I've read two books, two or three books, and then numerous articles in financial magazines. All right, and you know I don't expect to be able to p- select and pick out uh, uh, ten or twenty mutual funds.
1: What's the size uh, of the four hundred one k that you'll be uh, that you'll be receiving?
5: Um, it's about uh, uh, four hundred
1: fifty. All right, four hundred fifty thousand dollars. You certainly are not going to want to have twenty mutual funds. You're exactly right.
5: What I'm leading up to, I think, is in order and before I meet with a planner, I want to educate myself a little bit better. Um, so, one question is: uh, there, there are these mutual fund families, which there could be an advantage of staying in one family. What are some of the mutual fund families that are kind of best of class? I not mean, they can't all be the same.
1: Well, it's yeah, not that they're the best fund. of class; they have a different philosophy. That's where I think the confusion comes. It's not that certain families are best of class, but each mutual fund family has a philosophy that permeates all of the funds in the family. For example, the Vanguard family of funds is basically their philosophy is more or less using index funds, not so much managers. Well, uh, if we're looking for active managers and a family that has active managers, that philosophy might not be the one we're looking for.
3: So, take out a pen and paper. Write down our number. It's nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. Hold on to that pen and paper, and maybe you'll get some ideas of things you should talk about.
5: Well, what are, what are some mutual fund families? Uh, just you know, three or four off the top of your head that that might be uh, areas um, fund families to pursue.
1: The only thing I can tell you, because I'm prohibited on the air because of securities regulations, of making any security recommendation. If you call my office, though, I can do it over the telephone directly to you. But on the air, I can't make recommendations. I'm not allowed to. And it could be conceived as if I'm recommending this fund family or that fund family. But you're exactly right. There are. There are probably about uh, 10 mutual fund families that right off the bat I can think of, and I know the philosophies of each of them, and I have my feelings about different ones. Uh,
5: Are you tell, married, Frank?
1: Yeah. Tell oh, me a little yeah. bit about your situation. Yeah. All right, Jim.
5: Uh, yeah, we're married. Uh, we're in our middle sixties, and um, we own a home with no mortgage. And yes, sir. Uh, What's uh, the that's piece? Great. Of,
1: you said you've got mm-hmm. a piece of property that you're selling.
5: Yeah, it's some uh, it's some raw land that's. Um, it's going to bring in three three sixty 360, three hundred and I've got a profit of over a hundred in it.
1: All right, so and you're I'm going to have about twenty five thousand dollars in taxes on that.
5: Well, I was uh, counting on selling it next year when I'm not working and getting the lower fifteen percent. Uh, that would be my income for next year.
1: I would go ahead and meet with a financial planner that will put a true financial planning approach. Looks at both sides of the world. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is you're going to have what's called a qualified portfolio of about four hundred and fifty. Then you'll have maybe about three let's say after taxes, if you did do it this year, maybe about 330000 in a non-qualified or a personal portfolio. Looking at it that way, then the two of them together would be how you would meet your income needs. And, of course, you want to look at the tax impact of drawing income from the two of them. If you draw... You're over fifty nine and a half, so you don't have to worry about a fifty nine half penalty. But between the two of them, hang on. Let me do a quick number for you. For fifty.
2: Wait a minute. Did you say that you were selling it for three sixty five, but your profit would be one twenty five? Uh, roughly.
5: Roughly, yeah, that's correct. Yeah.
1: I wanted to ask you: Do you know what your living expenses are?
5: Uh, yes.
1: About how much are your expenses?
5: Um, probably seven thousand a month.
1: All right. These two portfolios should be able to give you about 3000 a month. So, with 3000 a month coming in to your buckets for for to cover your expenses, then the question will be, will you be drawing – secu- well, not at age – oh, you're in your mid-60s. You will yeah. be drawing Social yeah. Security. I could. You could. Yeah, These like are the it, kinds but. of things that a financial planning consultation should address. How to look at, should I or shouldn't I take the Social Security now? Should I go ahead and take the rollover now, or as soon as I retire, and should I start drawing from it? What will be the tax impact of the income coming out of it? Well, How do I structure the portfolio inside the rollover? And then, what about the property to put together the other portfolio? Because that portfolio will give you income at far less taxes.
5: Right. Well, plus, I've got some non retirement assets, so I don't think I'm not planning on taking Social Security for a few more years.
1: Well, in each of these cases, the whole financial planning process should encompass all of it the tax impact, the living expenses, and then that will dictate how many mutual funds you should have in each portfolio. And then more importantly than how you have them, it's what happens after you've got them. What is the philosophy of rebalancing them? And when do you change them? Mutual funds should not be considered a static one-time, this is it for the rest of my life. That's how people really get hurt. Right, right. Uh,
2: And then once you retire, Frank... What are your plans? Are you and your wife going to travel, or did you need to do some updating on your estate planning? Do you have some grown children?
5: Uh, yes, we have, and we've already actually worked out some life goals. And um,
1: It sounds like you're ready for a consultation with a financial planner.
5: Goals.
2: Well, that's great. Well, uh, this is kind of an exciting time of, in, in your life, isn't
5: it? Well, it is, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to learn something about investments, but I'm yeah. sorry you couldn't. Well,
1: I can. No, I. I, I think the. Yeah, I think what you're not, what you're missing is not which is the best mutual fund family. That's that. That's that. That's a there very. There may be four or five, from what I've. Well, it's 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 more. It's 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 far more sophisticated answer than that. There's no such thing as the best. I could give you the best mutual fund performance in any mutual fund family, and still. It will not help you gain, well, how much did they lose? Did they outperform their peers? You want to see what did they do against their index? And each fund in the family will also have a different track record. So it, right. it, it doesn't work that way. It, it, it's more like getting an understanding of how do you structure the portfolio. The beginning process for you, Frank, is you must know how many classes of mutual funds you want. What's the size of each of those funds in each class? And then of the two portfolios, how do you balance the two portfolios together? Then comes the question of, well, do I go to this family or these families and so on? Because you're going to also be running into issues of loads or commissions. So for sure, you want to make sure that you keep your cost down the most.
5: Right. Well, there's even something. I've even read that there are no-load funds.
1: There are. There's no free lunch, and then you get inside and you have to analyze the fees. The no-load fund says you can come in for free, and then you find out that the ongoing annual fees can be four times higher. So you have to have that worked. And that's what the financial planning consultation should walk you through.
2: Financial planning is comprehensive planning. And that does, you know, financial planning isn't just... My investments. It covers all the aspects of your your financial world, and it it encompasses what what you are feeling and what your wife is feeling about this whole situation, right?
5: Right. That's correct.
2: Well, call us at the office, and we'll be happy to uh, you know send you an introductory packet or answer any more questions that you might have. Our number in Raleigh is nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. That's 919-USA-7000. Very good. All right. Thanks so much for calling, Frank. You have a wonderful week. Thank you for your time. Okay. Bye. Bye now. Bye. Well, that was a very interesting caller.
1: Yeah, Lynn, it's unfortunate. So many people think it's a quick little down and dirty, what's the best mutual fund or what's the best mutual fund family? Or And it doesn't work that way. Uh, to one person, this is the best mutual fund family because their money was the safest through the years. To another... It's, oh, well, these mutual funds over here outperformed the others and had more risk and more volatility. So it's much more aimed at the person. And I think what Frank really needs, of course, is a consultation which lets him and his planner interact to see uh, which family or which mutual funds will meet his comfort level the best.
2: And I'm very glad to see, you know, I think one of the uh, articles that we were going to go over tonight – uh, during the show, I'm very glad to see that Frank and his wife, over their lifetime, have accumulated in a retirement plan, have accumulated assets that will be able to support them and their lifestyle in retirement. But as you had said earlier, it's important to make sure that you work with a fee based financial planner that can help you sort out and answer all the questions that will um enhance what your income will be in retirement. Well, I
3: think one of the things that I often hear is, do, uh, just like our last caller, do I need to be educated to come in and see a financial planner? And I think one of the best things about a financial planner and anyone in the, who is a certified financial planner is they're geared towards educating you. So when you walk away, you know more than when you walked in. You're not going to be sold a product. You're going to be educated.
1: That's the whole goal of a of a real financial planning consultation is to get the education. Uh, you don't get because the it's educa- for the y- rest
2: of your life. That's right. It's exactly you know. And paying a fee for advice, not for is a sales of a product, because you've ac- you've spent your whole lifetime accumulating those assets. So it is worth every penny you spend to get advice to get a to professional know, opinion to get professional advice on what to do for the present and the future.
3: You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website,
2: dougandlinda.com. In the last several weeks, I've gotten a number of calls from people that have had some interest in finding out information about setting up a charitable trust. What exactly is
1: a charitable remainder trust? A charitable remainder trust is a tax-advantaged Irrevocable trust that can provide the client with a lifetime income and immediate tax benefits. That's quite powerful. A lifetime income, but immediate tax benefits. The trust principle is ultimately going to be paid to a qualified charity, which will be selected by the client himself. And Section 664 of the Internal Revenue Code provides the primary rules that govern charitable remainder trusts. When you say immediate tax benefits, what do you mean by that? You actually get a tax deduction for setting up a charitable remainder trust and funding it now, even though the charity is not going to get its gift until maybe 30 or 40 years from now.
2: Okay. Well, does a charitable remainder trust offer other benefits as well?
1: Yes, it does, Lynn. Since the charitable remainder trust is an irrevocable trust, that means it can't be changed. The principal is not subject to probate. Or federal estate taxes in most cases, or creditor claims. So it's a way of reducing the estate taxes and also a way of bypassing probate.
2: What type of client could benefit from a charitable remainder trust?
1: Oh, Lynn, a charitable remainder trust can benefit an awful lot of different types of clients for different benefits. But the first one that comes to mind is the client who has highly appreciated assets, who would like to increase their income, reduce their taxes, and are charitably minded, or any combination of these three. What's the first thing you think of as a highly appreciated asset, Linda? Real estate? Yeah, highly appreciated is a fancy language for something that's gone up in value since you got it. Or stocks. So, those types of people immediately come to mind. Those with highly appreciated assets who want to increase their income and reduce their taxes and are charitably minded.
2: For those of the folks that own a lot of farmland or inherited large parcels of property that is one of the ways that they can reduce the estate correct
1: there's a big problem it's called land rich cash poor a lot of folks are that way and for folks that have a lot of land there's no way for their heirs to pay those taxes after they die they're prime candidates for charitable remainder trust
2: well how soon will a charitable remainder trust generate income once it's established
1: actually lynn A charitable trust can generate income almost immediately. We've had a number of clients this past year who want income to start right after they set up their trust. And so they start getting their trust to pay them income right away. And then it can continue on a monthly basis or quarterly basis for years and years and years or until the client dies, however he sets it up.
2: Once it's set up, can the income pass to the children or to others?
1: Yes and no, Lynn. The income, first of all, can pass. To the children, a charitable remainder trust can provide income for the client's life plus a term of years. But the IRS says that it can't be more than 20 years. So if you plan to set up a charitable trust and then you die the next year, you can set it up in such a way that the next 20 years of income will pass to your children. But you can't go beyond 20 years for the next generation.
3: If you hear something tonight that sounds like your situation call us. Set up an appointment. We can help you. 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000.
2: How is the income that is generated by a trust taxed?
1: Well, Lynn, this is one of the most complicated things about charitable trust. It's what we call the four-tier accounting. The income that's earned by the trust and is paid to you is paid out, first, what's called ordinary income, second, it's called capital gains income, third, it's tax-free income, and fourth, it's return of principal. But the most common payments are plain old ordinary income, and you are taxed on them at ordinary income rates.
2: Well, how is the tax deduction calculated?
1: This is really unique, Lynn, because if you think of it, let's say you've got something. You've got a, a thing, a piece of real estate or a stock portfolio that you want to go ahead and give to a trust to one day go to a charity. The IRS formula is used to determine the future value of a present gift. The formula takes into account the present value of the gift and the donor's age and the income payment selected. And this criteria determines the value of the gift that's actually received at some time in the future by the designated charity. If you think of it, it's separating the income portion from the principal portion of an asset, and agreeing to give away the principal and keep the income, and then computing how much principal it's going to be worth when the charity finally gets it 20 or 30, 40 years from now, and then reducing that back to present value and taking a tax deduction on that basis. That's very complicated, but it's a beautiful strategy.
2: Once a person sets up a charitable remainder trust, are the contributions to this trust revocable?
1: No, Lynn, they're not. And that's the real thing to recognize here. Since the Internal Revenue Service allows the avoidance of capital gains tax, and that's a powerful, powerful thing to say that the IRS will allow the avoidance of capital gains tax. That means you can sell something that you've made a profit on and pay no tax on the profit. But since the IRS allows that and also allows you to get a tax deduction, just like making a gift to a charity today, there must be an irrevocable guarantee that a gift will be received by a charity sometime in the future, and that promise must be irrevocable. So you cannot go ahead and set up a charitable trust, give something to it, get a tax deduction for doing it, and then change your mind and take it back.
2: Can more than one charity be named as a charitable beneficiary of a charitable remainder trust?
1: Absolutely, Lynn. You can set up multiple charities as what they call charitable remaindermen. Believe it or not, you can change your mind and set up a charitable trust for the benefit, let's say, of NC State today. And if you don't like the way the Wolfpack does one year, then you could change it over to another school or change it from one charity to another or one beneficiary to another. You can move the charity designations as often as you want over the life of the trustee.
2: So certainly uh, people that may be charitably inclined could contribute to their alma mater To any of the universities or to a favorite charity. And then they would be the beneficiary of the assets in the trust when it ends, right?
1: Yeah. The charity becomes the beneficiary when it ends. But the beautiful part about this trust is that you, the client who sets it up, you keep all the income for the rest of your life and even for your wife or your spouse's life. You get the income. You don't have the tax problem. You get a tax deduction for doing it. You can sell stuff within the charitable trust and pay no capital gains tax. You well, what, can really design these in a very creative way.
2: And if this sounds familiar to your situation, call the office in Raleigh at 919 872 That's 919-USA-7000. Well, Doug, what assets can be transferred to fund this trust?
1: Almost any asset that isn't mortgaged. You can't put anything into a charitable trust that has any sort of what they call debt on it. So no mortgages. Anything other than that can be transferred into a charitable trust. There is caution, however, in transferring assets such as real estate and closely held stock. Very often, by the way, Lynn, this is a great thing to do with a small business owner trying to deal with what about the value of his business stock, of his company. You can transfer this in to a charitable trust. But these are all called the real estate, the closely held stock. These are called Hard to value assets. And we need to have a lot of care and assistance in transferring hard to value assets into a charitable trust to get the proper valuation because you're going to go ahead and get a deduction today for the value that you set on this asset that you transfer into the trust. So you want to get a proper appraisal.
2: Well, Doug, can only a portion of a particular asset be transferred into a trust? Believe it or not, Lynn, we can do that also. This can be accomplished.
1: With the charitable remainder unit trust, the client can choose to take only a part of their appreciated assets and put that into the trust. Let's say you've got a large piece of property. Matter of fact, we did that with one recently with one client, and they had a large tract of land which their home was on. It was like a farm. And we drew an imaginary line, carving part of it off, and put one part of it into the trust and kept the other part out. The other part that we kept out, we called the home, and the part that we transferred into the trust We call this the gifted part and was able to avoid all the capital gains tax on the gifted part that we put into the charitable trust. So you can take half. You can do the same thing with business stock. Small business owner can put part of his stock in and keep part of his stock out. But then when you put part of an asset into a charitable trust, Lynn, you can at a later time add additional assets into the charitable trust, which will increase the income you're getting from this trust and also increase the amount of your charitable deduction. The charitable trust can really be an excellent vehicle for building retirement income by making annual contributions during a client's high earning years.
3: If you need help, call me, Deborah Lewis, 919 872
2: 7000. Can a client be his own trustee?
1: Yeah, Lynn, very few people realize and Actually, if you were to ask 10 attorneys, probably nine of them would tell you the answer to your question is no, but they're all wrong. Believe it or not, you can be your own trustee. The IRS does not mind. A donor can be his own trustee. However, a donor may want to consider having a co-trustee or a subsequent trustee in the event that they become incapacitated.
2: Well, Doug, why would a person want to be
1: their own trustee? If you set up a trust and you own something and you give it to this trust, Let's say it's your real estate. Then, even if the trust doesn't give it to the charity until after you die, it's the trustee who controls it during your lifetime. So the trustee is the crucial player here. Traditionally, banks, trust companies, and charities served as the trustees to be sure that all elements of the money management and the administration were handled properly. With this arrangement, however, the donor, that's the client, had little or no control over the investment objectives And they really had no recourse, Lynn, if he or she was dissatisfied with the money management or the administrative services. So the whole key is to be your own trustee so that you control it and then to sub out, if you will, or hire out an independent administrator to do all the day-to-day details of tax reporting and so forth. But you be your own trustee. That's the one that I recommend for all
2: clients. Okay. And are there any ongoing costs with a charitable remainder trust?
1: Well, there are ongoing costs, Lynn. Uh, there's the annual tax filing. It doesn't have to be too high. And there are the asset valuations, which may or may not be required. And then there's the administration cost. But generally, you can think about one-third of 1% is about how much it will cost for the ongoing administration of a charitable trust.
2: Well, Doug, it sounds fantastic as a financial planning tool. How do we summarize the features for different types of people?
1: Well, Lynn, for different people at different times in their lives, a charitable trust can mean a great deal. It can be the difference between taking advantage of all kinds of benefits or just letting them pass by. For example, for one individual, it could mean the ability to build a retirement income supplement that's not restricted by the per-year limits. So we could be putting in more than the maximum they can put into a retirement plan. That's for that individual looking for retirement income. For the individual, on the other hand, who's at or near retirement, It's a way to convert highly appreciated assets, but still ones that are producing low income. Let's say it's like farmland or stock portfolio. It's a way to convert them to much higher income producing assets without having that principle eroded by paying a capital gains tax. So you can sell something tax free. Now, for individuals selling highly appreciated stock or real estate or business interest or any other assets at any time during their life, It means the ability to avoid the capital gains tax and increase the total economic benefit by reinvesting all of the proceeds from the sale, not just the after-tax proceeds. Not only that, for individuals who are interested in avoiding estate taxes, Lynn, it provides a way to reduce the amount of assets in their taxable estate while still retaining the income rights to those assets, and they can therefore improve the benefits that their heirs will receive after they die.
3: Give us a call during the week at Lewis Financial Management. Make an appointment to sit down face-to-face and discuss your, your situation. The number at our office during the week is 919 872 That's 919 872
1: And Lynn, lastly, for people who have a desire to maximize their ability to contribute to a favorite charity, it's a way to leverage their charitable contribution. Not everybody is going to have all of these situations occur in their life. But on the other hand, one or two of those will probably happen to most people. So the charitable remainder trust, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful financial planning tools that's available today.
2: And if you're listening this evening and you have an estate problem, (laughs) this might be one of the uh, avenues that you can take for reducing the estate, correct, Doug? That's right, Lynn. But isn't it very important that you uh, really research the matter? I know I've gotten some people that have called in at the office that say, well, they went to a seminar about charitable trusts, and they want to know about living trusts, and should we have one? And I'm all confused. They are confused. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I I sympathize for all those people because, uh, you know, people – get taken in by going to seminars and listening to, to this and that, but you really do have to do your, your research and, um, and also work with uh, an estate planning expert as well, correct?
1: Well, Alexander Pope never knew about financial planners, but he did say a little learning is a dangerous thing. Taste deep or drink not of the Pyrian spring. Uh, he could have just as easily said, watch out, you can get in trouble. Living trust have nothing to do with charitable remainder trust. They can confuse you. They have no tax benefits. They're wonderful tools, but that's a very different animal than the charitable trust. And you're right, Linda, people do get very confused.
2: To any of our listeners, if you have a question or if you would like to receive our introductory packet of information, I'll be happy to send it to you. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That is USA 7000. If you have some financial planning concerns or questions about your situation, get a notebook and start jotting down some of those questions and work with a financial planner.
3: Thank you for joining us for another edition of Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug, Linda, and Deborah. You can listen to our podcast online at WPTF.com. Call us to set your appointment this week. 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
0: You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Saturday and Sunday at 5 p.m. for Money Matters with the Lewis's on 680-WPTF.